Welcome, listener. I'm glad you're here. Take a seat. Next to the fire. Welcome to Obscura, where we shine a light on the dark. In the state of Illinois, there are almost 40,000 prisoners in the Department of Corrections. In 1973, that number was 5,600. That was the year the giant Sears Tower in Chicago was completed, changing the landscape of the city forever. 1973 was 18 years before the World Wide Web was invented. There were no personal computers, no mobile phones, smartphones, Tablets are Kindles. People read paperback books. They went out to the movie theater to watch a film. DNA hadn't been used in a criminal trial yet. and wouldn't be for another 13 years. The world 47 years ago was different. But the act of murder, the taking of another human's life, sadly was not. In 1973, three brutal murders were carried out along Interstate 57 in Illinois. The man responsible with three accomplices was Henry Brisbane. He was just 17 years old. Henry Brisbane has been called the poster child for capital punishment. He is a man whose violent history has left a trail of destruction behind him. This story is about the lives he destroyed. At the time these murders occurred in June of 1973, across the city of Chicago there was another man who would prove to be as dangerous, if not more dangerous, as Henry Brisbane, a man who preyed on men exactly the age Brisbane was when he took the lives of three innocent victims on I-57. John Wayne Gacy. His murderous activities yet to be discovered a mere handful of miles away from where Brisbane was operating would all be found out and send Gacy to death row a place where he would encounter the violence of Henry Brisbane for himself. Now, let's get on with it. Part 1. Murder on I-57 On the evening of June 3, 1973, at 10.56 p.m., the Cook County Sheriff's Office in Illinois received a phone call from a shocked motorist on Interstate 57. He reported two bodies lying on a grassy verge at the edge of the highway, near Country Club Hills, just west of Flossmoor Village. As police vehicles raced to the scene, they puzzled over what had happened. I-57 runs from Sykeston, in Missouri to Chicago, in Illinois, covering a distance of 386 miles populated with exit ramps to access the various cities and towns along the route. I-57 was easily accessible from multiple areas. When sheriff's officers arrived at the scene, they found a young man and woman lying face down in the grass. Their hands and arms were over their heads, and they each had one single bullet wound in their upper back. For seasoned officers at first glance, this looked like an execution. 
The state police identified the two bodies as Dorothy Cerny and James Schmidt. Both were only 25 years old. They were a young couple in love who had planned to be married in November that year. That night, they had been at the first communion party for Dorothy's nephew in Madison, just three miles away from where their bodies were found. They had left the party 90 minutes earlier, driving their new red Dodge, which was now nowhere to be seen. Dorothy was an elementary school teacher in Derwin, the small city just south of Chicago where they lived, and proud that she was soon to be married. Her much-loved engagement ring was now missing from her left hand. James worked at a trucking firm in Chicago. His pockets had been turned inside out and were now empty. Dorothy's purse was also missing. As officers began to work the scene, they were told of a police report called in less than an hour before Dorothy and James had been found. 43-year-old Doris Bell had been driving home along I-57. After attending church services in Kankakee, Around 9.15 p.m. that evening, she had become aware of headlights behind her. Headlights that were getting rapidly closer. The vehicle behind bumped into hers. It was a light bump, but enough to make Doris pull over to the shoulder. The offending vehicle did the same, and she watched through a rearview mirror as the driver got out and walked towards the driver's side of her vehicle. As she wound down her window... She saw a neatly dressed young man who politely apologized to her. I must have fallen asleep at the wheel, he told her. She asked him if there was any damage to the back of her vehicle. He wasn't sure, he said, but maybe she should check. As Doris got out of her vehicle, she was startled by a second man exiting the vehicle behind. He was holding a 12-gauge shotgun and was pointing it right at her. She was ordered to get back into her vehicle and move over onto the passenger seat. Doris Bell made an astonishing decision at that moment. She looked at the gunman and refused his commands. God is the one who can protect me, she told him. She turned and got back into her vehicle. She put the gear into drive and drove away, getting back up to speed on the interstate as fast as she could. That courageous decision saved her life. When she arrived home, she called the police to report what had happened. By the time her call was connected, there had been another murder, Long I-57, and it wasn't Dorothy and James, Betty Lou Harmon. As the young couple were facing terror at the hands of their killer, 26 miles away in the village of Manteno in Kankakee County, 29-year-old Betty Lou Harmon was saying goodbye to her mother. She had visited that evening from her home in Darien, DuPage County, to drop off her little white poodle, Shabby. 26 miles away in the village of Mantino, he would be staying at her mother's for the next two weeks. Betty and her husband were off on vacation to Niagara Falls in the next few days. Betty said goodbye to her mother, gone to her green Chevrolet, and set off home. It was a journey she had driven often, and she'd be home within the hour. Betty Lou Harmon left Mantino and joined I-57 at 10 o'clock on Sunday night. The sun had long gone down, and the lanes of the highway were encased in darkness. It was an easy drive. Traffic was light at that time of night. 
Most had already made it home from their weekends away and Sunday outings ready for the start of another work week the following day. Betty Lou Harmon, who was so looking forward to her holiday with her husband, would not be joining them. Near the Eisenhower Expressway, a police cruiser from nearby Maxwell saw a green vehicle speed past them around 11 p.m. on that Sunday night. Lights on, they immediately gave chase. The speeding Chevrolet had a few seconds on them, and by the time they caught up in a neighborhood area near Central Park Avenue, they saw it crash into a parked station wagon. Residents still out on their porches on a warm summer's night had witnessed a young man jump out of the vehicle and run down an alley. That young man returned to the vehicle when he was sure he had lost the police on his trail. After carefully checking the street, he strolled back to the vehicle, reached in through the driver's door, and pulled out a shotgun. Putting it under his jacket, he asked one of the residents if they would hide the weapon for him. They refused. The man shrugged and calmly walked away. Betty Lou Harmon was an administrative assistant at the Madden State Hospital in Hines, 11 miles to the west of Chicago. Her boss and friend, Noble Emd, became immediately concerned when she did not arrive for work on Monday morning. He spoke with her husband, Gerald, who was a conductor for the Illinois Central Gulf Railroad, and working away on that Sunday and Monday. Gerald and Noble realized Betty hadn't made it home the previous evening. They had seen the news. They knew of the double murder that happened on I-57. The same road Betty would have been driving to get home. Noble hired a small plane and pilot on that Monday morning from a DuPage County airport. Once in the air and flying at 1,500 feet, he and the pilot scanned the grassy verges and marshland areas along the edges of Interstate 57. Using binoculars, Noble spotted what he thought was a nude sunbather about 1,000 yards from the highway edge and near a large sewage lake. As he looked closer, he realized his worst fear. It was a woman's body. The pilot noted the location and landed at the nearest available airport. Noble called the police to notify them of what he had seen. From the highway, with Noble giving directions, Betty Lou Harmon's body was found. Lying in a grassland inside of a fenced area surrounding the lake, Betty had no clothes on, and none of her personal possessions were nearby. She had been shot in the neck with what looked like a large caliber weapon, the police sheriff later commented that her body would never have been seen from the road. Without Noble Emd searching in that small plane, there's a good chance her body would not have been found. The Green Chevrolet, chased by the Maxwell police cruiser on the Sunday night, proved to be Betty Lou Harmon's vehicle. The man seen leaving the vehicle with a gun hidden was now the prime suspect in the murder. Will County Medical Examiner Willard Blood carried out an autopsy on June 5th at Silver Cross Hospital in Joliet. 
He was able to confirm it was the gun blast to her neck at close range that had been her cause of death. But he had further devastating news for her family. On examination, he had found there was a second gunshot wound. Betty Lou Harmon had most likely been raped by her killer, who had then inserted the gun barrel inside of her and fired. A prison confession. For two years, police officers from Cook and Will Counties continued to work the I-57 murder case with the help of Chicago police. They had linked the murders of Betty Lou Harmon, Dorothy Cerny, and James Schmidt and were confident they'd been committed by the same person or persons. On June 6th, they had found Dorothy Cerny's missing red Dodge. It had been abandoned a mile away from where they had found Betty Lou Harmon's vehicle but they were yet to identify any suspects. The break in the case would come from an unlikely source. In October 1975, two years after the I-57 murders, Robert Lee was incarcerated at the Statesville Penitentiary in Illinois. A male prison, Statesville has a long and colorful history, including a period as an execution site for prisoners sentenced to death. Located two miles to the north of Joliet, prisoners from the surrounding areas found themselves locked up here. Robert Lee had been sentenced to 20 to 50 years for murder and in prison since 1970. His assigned job role at Stateville was in the prison library. He was the inmate law librarian, helping other inmates with gaining access to courts and with their paperwork for post-conviction appeals. In mid-October that year, he met an inmate by the name of Henry Brisbane. At 19 years old, he was serving a 6-18 year sentence for rape and robbery, a crime he claimed he did not commit. Henry Brisbane was a 5'9", medium-built African-American, his dark hair blending with large glasses. He has been described as bookish in appearance. The conviction that put him in prison was an offense carried out with an accomplice, Tony Sanford. On February 2, 1975, a student nurse who worked in Cook County had been scraping ice from her vehicle windshield at around 11.15 p.m., preparing for a night shift. A vehicle had appeared alongside her in the parking lot. The man had stepped out of the passenger seat, holding a shotgun ordered her back into her own vehicle and into the back seat. The man got inside beside her while his accomplice got in the driver's seat. She was driven for about 15 minutes to an isolated area behind a row of townhouses. There she was ordered to undress before she was raped by both men. Once the assault was over, she was driven back to the parking lot where the men got back into their own vehicle and left. She immediately drove to her workplace and reported the attack to the police. As the men had gotten back into their own vehicle, she had been able to see and memorize their number plate. AA-3189. This gave police the lead on the case. That vehicle was spotted by a police patrol vehicle five days later, and after a short chase, both occupants had given themselves up. 
Both men, a student was able to identify as her attackers. Just under two weeks before his 16th birthday, Henry Brisbane had kidnapped a woman at gunpoint and raped her. Both were found guilty at a bench trial held in December 1973. After discussing his case with Robert Lee, Henry Brisbane asked if he had heard of the I-57 murders. Robert had little access to television or crime news in the five years he had been behind bars and told him he had it. Henry Brisbane went on to tell him he had committed those murders. He gave detail, graphic detail on the events of that night two years earlier. There was no remorse in his voice. His words did not reflect of a man deeply sorry for his actions. His entire demeanor was the exact opposite. Henry Brisbane was proud of what he had done that night. He was jovial, bright-eyed, and excited while telling his story. He had carried out the I-57 murders while he was out on bond for the rape and armed robbery of the student nurse the year before. At still only 17 years old, the threat of incarceration did nothing to curb his desire to commit violence. The truth comes out. Disturbed by what he had heard, Robert Lee spoke with a medical technician in the prison who passed the information on to police. They began to investigate Brisbane, his criminal history, who he was friends with, They wanted to be armed with all the information before they spoke with him directly. When the state police did arrive to interview him months later, Brisbane was taken aback by their visit. Initially, he toyed with them. He said he wasn't part of the murders, but a friend had told him the details. The officers weren't convinced and returned a few days later to press him further. He wanted to talk about a deal, what the state would do for him if he provided them with information. A visit from an assistant state's attorney was enough to get him to talk. Brisbane gave his edited version of events and gave the names of those who were with him on that night. David Sanders, Daryl Thompson, and Stanley Charleston. In March 1976, Brisbane's three accomplices were arrested by Cook County State Police All four men were charged with murder, armed robbery, and conspiracy. The murder charges were for the deaths of Dorothy Cerny and James Schmidt. The murder of Betty Lou, which had happened in Will County, was being held on file while prosecutors waited for the outcome of these Cook County trials. Stanley Charleston and Daryl Thompson, the elder two of the group at 22 years old, pled guilty and agreed to testify against Brisbane as being the one who pulled the trigger. In exchange, they would not go to trial and would be given lighter sentences for their cooperation. Sanders took another approach. He claimed he was there and involved. He was forced into it by the other three. He would stand trial separately to Brisbane. It would be at Henry Brisbane's trial which started in September 1977 at the Circuit Court of Cook County, that the families of the I-57 victims would finally learn the truth about what had happened to their loved ones. 
On September 19th, before testimony started, the jury was taken by bus to visit the scenes on I-57 where the bodies were found. Judge James Bailey walked the jury through the different crime scenes. Henry Brisbane was also present. Now 21 years old, in handcuffs and flanked by police officers, his relaxed smiles and happy attitude were disturbing sights for the 12 jury members. At the time of the I-57 murders, Brisbane and Thompson were 17 years old and Charleston and Sanders were 19 years old. Four young men, all under the age of 20. On the night of June 3, 1973, the group had decided to attend a party where they planned to take drugs and get high and then rob a pizza parlor to see how much cash they could get. They drove from Chicago to Kankakee and Sanders Subaru to another friend's home to borrow his 12-gauge shotgun. As they got near the planned robbery target, the presence of the police vehicles in the area unnerved them. As they were driving on I-57 back to Chicago, it was Henry Brisbane's idea to find people who they could rob. Brisbane suggested they purposely have vehicles on the interstate to make them pull over to the side of the road. Their first victim was Doris Bell. They were not expecting her refusal when faced with a shotgun. Their next vehicle was Betty Lou Harmon's Green Chevrolet. When she stopped, Brisbane and Sanders pushed Betty into the back seat while Thompson got into the driver's seat. Betty was driven to a more secluded area of the highway a few minutes away. Stripped naked, terrified, and begging for her life, she was forced to climb over the fence surrounding the sewage lake and disappeared into the darkness with Henry Brisbane. The others raided her vehicle to see what they could steal. After around 10 minutes, a loud gunshot echoed across the fields in quiet lanes of I-57. Five minutes later, Brisbane returned to the vehicle alone. A detective came and knocked on the door, and I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. 
the debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. The Red Dodge, driven by Dorothy Cerny and James Schmidt, was the next vehicle to be hit by Sanders Subaru. Brisbane pointed the shotgun at the young couple and ordered them over to a grass area, about four to eight feet, away from the road, while the rest of the group rifled through their vehicle for valuables. Brisbane told Dorothy and James to lie down on the grass on their stomachs, keeping their hands above their heads. At the moment, before Brisbane fired the fatal shots, he told them, Make this your last kiss. 1,000 to 3,000 years. Henry Brisbane had spent his trial smirking and showing complete disrespect for everyone in the courtroom. The distress of the victims' families hearing the last moments of their loved ones' lives had no impact on him. The assistant state attorney who prosecuted him, Michael Ficaro, told Judge Bailey in court, It was a night of horror that will never be forgotten. It is marked by three of the most vicious murders in modern history. He is a wild, savage beast that should be caged. His arrogance is completely overwhelming. He would gladly kill again if he got the opportunity. Judge Bailey was restricted in the sentence he could impose. At 17 years old at the time of the murders, Brisbane was classed as a juvenile. The death penalty was not an option. The sentence the judge gave was one of extraordinary length in 1973. In fact, it was the longest prison sentence ever given in the state of Illinois at that time. Henry Brisbane was sentenced to 1,000 to 3,000 years for the murders of Dorothy Cerny and James Schmidt. The judge explained he had chosen to give such a long sentence to try to ensure future parole boards never let him out of prison. His final comments before Brisbane was led back to the cells were one of disgust and disdain. You are an evil coward. You are the lowest. You sit there smiling, but you better beg your God for forgiveness. The crimes you committed took no guts at all. I'm sorry I can't execute you. As Brisbane was taken away in handcuffs, the justice system hoped they would not see him again inside a courtroom. But in less than 12 months, the prosecutor's predictions about Henry Brisbane would be proved right. Part 2. The Prison Murder In October 1978, Henry Brisbane was serving his time at the Stateville Penitentiary. He had been the opposite of a model prisoner since his arrival. On the 19th of that month, he was in cell 831 of the BE Segregation Unit of the prison. 
He'd been separated from the general population after infraction after infraction for troublemaking, attacks on prisoners, guards, and even the prison warden. On that day, prison guard Nobi Mercer was taking a new prisoner to his cell on level 8. As he passed Brisbane's cell, he wanted to be let out to use the bathroom, claiming his cell toilet was blocked. Once the new prisoner was secure, the guard unlocked Brisbane's cell to grant his request. In seconds, Brisbane was on top of him, holding a homemade knife to his throat. He was ordered to release inmate Herman Morgan from a neighboring cell. With his life under threat, he had no choice. Nobi Mercer was then pushed inside Herman's cell and locked in. All he could do was watch the two men leave the segregation unit. Henry Brisbane and Herman Morgan went downstairs to level two of the prison. It was there they found fellow inmate Richard Hippie Morgan standing in front of his cell, now joined by a third inmate, Donald Binford. The trio attacked Richard Morgan with Henry Brisbane, stabbing him in the back repeatedly. As Richard Morgan tried and failed to stand and run from his attackers, he stumbled and fell. He was pinned down and received more stab blows to his back. When happy they had achieved their aim, three men left the scene and ran back upstairs. Richard Morgan cried out for help. He was taken to the prison hospital by guards. There, he was pronounced dead a short time later. Back in the prison wing, Brisbane and Herman Morgan had returned to the segregation unit on level 8. The guard Nobi Mercer was released from Morgan's cell, and both men locked themselves back in their own cells. Nobi quickly took a prisoner headcount and then raised the alarm. Richard Morgan was dead, murdered inside the prison by a group of three inmates. The scene where he was stabbed was a bloody mess. A homemade knife was found under the stairwell, six to seven inches in length. It was a plastic spoon that had been sharpened to a point. A cardboard handle had been taped around the plastic to ensure a better grip. Two fingerprints were found on the knife. Both matched Henry Brisbane. When the autopsy was carried out, the medical examiner noted five stab wounds to Richard Morgan. Two in his upper back, which were fatal. One of his lungs had been punctured, and his pulmonary artery had been severed. Richard had no chance of survival and had bled to death internally. Henry Brisbane was charged with first-degree murder just 11 months after receiving the longest prison sentence in the state. Brisbane had once again taken the life of another human being. There were numerous witnesses to this attack, but not all were willing to testify against fellow prisoners. The few that did during Brisbane's 1981 murder trial were promised to move to a different prison. As soon as their testimony was complete, one prisoner, Tyreed Green, testified that less than a week before the attack, he had witnessed Brisbane steal a plastic spoon from the serving tray in the canteen. Later that day, he had been sharpening the spoon on the concrete floor of his cell, with Harmon Morgan standing watch at the door. The medical examiner told the court that the blade responsible for Richard Morgan's injuries was six to seven inches in length. 
He said a homemade weapon like the one described by the prosecution matched the injuries he had examined. The evidence against him was overwhelming. Henry Brisbane was found guilty of murder. What had to be determined now was his sentencing. With the guilt-innocence phase of the trial complete, the prosecution could reveal to the jury that Brisbane had been convicted of two previous murders. Those of Dorothy Cerny and James Schmidt in 1977. Brisbane was 22 years old when he had killed Richard Morgan. The juvenile status that protected him during the I-57 murders was now gone. He was an adult, one who had committed murder inside a Department of Corrections facility and had committed one or more murders in the past. This meant Henry Brisbane was eligible to be put to death for his crime. The Death Penalty During the sentencing phase of a capital trial, aggravating and mitigating evidence is the focus in order to aid the jury in deciding on a sentence. Brisbane's defense team, in trying to find some mitigating factors, focused on his childhood and experience growing up with an overbearing father. It was evidence that did little to persuade the jury. Henry Brisbane's father classified himself as a black Muslim who held very strong beliefs on the Nation of Islam religion. In its most extreme form, the Nation of Islam believed that white people were devils, characteristically evil. Henry Brisbane Sr. taught his children that white people were not to be trusted. This, however, held little weight against the evidence the state prosecution had. The I-57 murders demonstrated his capability at just 17 to inflict terrorizing violence with no conscience. The jury decided there were no mitigating factors that could be taken into account for Henry Brisbane. On February 24, 1982, he was sentenced to death by lethal injection. Edward Petka, the Will County State's attorney who prosecuted Brisbane, told the St. Louis Post-Dispatch after his sentencing. Brisbane stated that he's got a plan to avoid the electric chair, which he would continue to kill. They should call the death penalty statute in Illinois the Henry Brisbane Statute. He's about as bad as a person we've ever had in the criminal court system of Illinois. He's a very, very terrible human being. From death row to life in prison. After being sentenced to death, Henry Brisbane was transferred to the Menard Correctional Center in Randolph County, Illinois. At that time, there were 42 inmates on death row in Menard, one of which was Chicago serial killer John Wayne Gacy. In Brisbane's long line of violent acts is an attack on two inmates in 1983. They were John Wayne Gacy another inmate, William Jones. Neither were seriously injured despite being stabbed. William Jones even testified in Brisbane's defense during one of his appeal hearings. Brisbane filed appeal after appeal in efforts to tie the justice system in knots. During each court appearance, he would threaten the guards escorting him, assuring them at the first chance he got, he would kill again. Prison officials came to the decision that Henry Brisbane was too dangerous to be held in a general population prison. 
His track record for violence against other prisoners and guards was notable and extensive. Henry Brisbane was a troublemaker with an unpredictable violent streak. He had accumulated hundreds of disciplinary violations, was cited as a ringleader in a prison riot at Stateville Prison in 1979, where guards had been taken hostage. He was not a controllable inmate. In 1998, Illinois had opened a 500-bed maximum security prison unit located at the Tams Correctional Center in Tams, Illinois. The conditions inside Tams were harsh, regimented, and restricted, exactly as they were designed to be. Prisoners did not mix with each other. Held in the cell for 23 hours per day, they had an hour a week to exercise in a small yard, surrounded by concrete. Henry Brisbane was moved to Tams after his sentence to death. On death row at this unit, his ability to incite and commit violence was severely limited. This did not stop him from causing as much trouble as he could. By 2003, Henry Brisbane had been on death row for 21 years. Illinois State Governor George Ryan made an announcement on January 12, 2003, which would change the course of Brisbane's future. Today, about two and a half days before my term ends as governor, I stand before you to explain my frustrations and deep concerns about both the administration and the penalty of death. I'm commuting the sentence of all death row inmates, 167 of them. Henry Brisbane was no longer facing the death penalty. His sentence commuted to life in prison without parole. American lawyer and best-selling author Scott Turow visited Tams and met with Henry Brisbane. In an interview with NPR in February 2003, he spoke about the Henry Brisbane case. Well, Henry Brisbane tends to be the poster child for capital punishment uh, in Illinois. When you talk to law enforcement professionals, people in the correctional system, prosecutors, uh, police officers, they always point to Brisbane because in addition to having been um, convicted twice of murder, uh, one set of serial murders and uh, another prison murder. Uh, he's got uh, an atrocious disciplinary record, over 250 disciplinary incidents, uh, many of them involving uh, you know, serious acts of alleged violence, stabbings, hitting correctional officers with two-by-fours, throwing a 30-pound dumbbell against the head of another inmate, severe, severely injuring him, uh, at least according to the prison officials' allegations. So he's, he is somebody whose propensity to violence and to murder um, is very well demonstrated. And certainly if you're going to execute anybody, uh, somebody who is a sort of living threat is, ought to be at the top of the list. So I wanted to meet Brisbane, but more important, look at the Supermax facility at TAMS, uh, the southern part of Illinois, just to see if it really was possible to restrain the likes of Brisbane uh, with conditions of confinement. In other words, because if you can't, I, I was prepared to say uh, that execution in those 
cases really seems to me to be um, just, um, if not inevitable. In 2012, the TAM Supermax facility was closed due to the considerable cost to keep each prisoner. Brisbane was transferred back to the general population at the Maximum Security Pontiac Correctional Center. At 63 years old this year, Henry Brisbane has been behind bars for 47 years. Henry Brisbane didn't carry out the I-57 murders alone. Conclusion There were four young men embedded in those crimes. At each stage of what happened that night, the opportunity was there to walk away, to stop what was happening. After Doris Bell defied their orders and escaped, they were not deterred. They simply moved on to their next victim. It was Henry Brisbane who took Betty Lou Harmon away into the grasslands and out of sight. It was he who fired those shots and ended her life. Yet in the clear knowledge of this fact, the other three boys continued to steal her vehicle and her belongings and repeat their actions with two final victims, Dorothy Cerny and James Schmidt. Betty Lou Harmon was a beautiful redhead. Her neighbors described her as a happy, gentle woman, always willing to help others around her. Her life was ended after a chance encounter on a dark road. A meeting of vehicles across a time frame of just minutes that put Betty Lou Harmon in the path of Henry Brisbane. A later or earlier departure from her mother's home that evening, she may have never met her death. Dorothy Cerny was planning her wedding. In four months, she was due to marry James Schmidt. Instead, that November date passed, with only sadness and mourning at the loss of this young couple never got to say their vows. For the family of James Schmidt, June 1973 dealt them a further blow and tragic loss. On June 26, just three weeks after Dorothy and James was murdered, James' father was killed in an accident and his work. At 72 years old, Joseph Schmidt had been working on the tugboats. In the Calumet River, for 45 years... Working on the deck of a tugboat pulling a freighter, the line suddenly snapped, flying back at speed and hitting Joseph Schmidt as it did so. He was taken to South Chicago Community Hospital, but pronounced dead on arrival. His widow, Agnes, and the remaining three sons had now lost a son and a brother to murder, and then their father in a shocking freak accident, all within one month. Henry Brisbane is a man who proved himself to be very difficult to control. Whether he is incarcerated with general population prisoners, in solitary confinement, or on death row, Brisbane has continued to attack, injure, and kill in defiant kickback against the rules trying to confine him. Fellow prisoner, guard, or prison official, he has shown no preference for who he is willing to hurt if given the chance. He gave an interview to a reporter on death row at Menard Correctional Center not long after he was sentenced to death. In it, he talked of his childhood and revealed his own positive, distorted image of himself. I grew up in an environment where I was taught from day one not to trust the Caucasian race. 
I didn't like them, and I didn't trust them. As I was going through that, I decided I didn't like nobody. People think I'm a savage individual, but I am not an animal. I'm not vicious. A lot of people think I must be about 6 foot 5 and 285 pounds. A real gorilla, you know? Basically, I think I'm a good guy. <laughs>